following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Yeah, so we want to look at how do we do this? How do we know what's truly pleasing to God? Uh, If we are to worship Him, if we are to make our life a living sacrifice, pleasing and acceptable, it means that we need to know and have some sense what God is asking of me. How can I know what He wants me to do? How do I know what today, with my life right at this moment, would be pleasing to Him? Right? Um, And Romans 12... One explains that what God wants ultimately is our life. Romans 12, 2 explains how we know what to do with that life, moment by moment, day by day, in a way that's offering truly a pleasing sacrifice. So let's look at that. And First of all, Paul starts by telling us what it is not. And he says, first of all, he says, do not be conformed to this world. You will never know or experience or accomplish God's will by patterning your life, by shaping your life after the world's system and pattern. Uh, and the word actually that's used in the Greek is after this present age. And it really contrasts the age that we live in now is one where God has begun His redemptive work. He's done his, begun His redemptive work in us. But we're not yet in the final age when God will make everything perfect and complete and whole. God has started to save us and He's started to produce change in us But we live in a world that's still very much uh, shaped by sin and fallenness. So he says, you know, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Uh, So we have to ask what that looks like. And uh, I'm not good. There's lots of ways that the world seeks to conform us. I couldn't begin to exhaust the list. And I don't know how it works for you. But let me give us a few examples of how the world tries to conform us to maybe jog your thinking of how. you are being conformed. And to start off with, let me say just as a disclaimer, uh, if you're sitting here this morning and you think, you know, I don't think this really applies to me because I was born in a Christian home, I was born Christian, you know, came out of the womb Christian, I came out reciting the Ten Commandments, you know. Of course, my Christian, yeah, you would say that. My Christian did come out a Christian. (laughs) Right. So you can forget this, because it won't apply to you. <laughs> um, you, know, you grew up in church, you grew up uh, in a Christian environment where you would say, you know, I, I, I really live with this Christian worldview. Well, Paul does not say that this only applies to people who grew up in a secular world, uh, outside of a Christian bubble, and that the rest of us are kind of somehow exempt, that we're not being conformed. Not true. The truth is that the world and its influence is pushing us to deal with life in a certain way. And the reason I know this is true is because a lot of churches, actually, and a lot of ministries are living by the pattern of the world. Right? You can be a church, you can be a Christian, you can be a ministry, and be very much conformed to the pattern of this world. Right? So let's look at some of the ways that the world seeks to conform us. The first one would be in, in telling us how we should live. How should I live? And there's two kind of ways this gets played out. Uh, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but quickly, one would be through what, what we would call moralism. And uh, what this is basically answering is the question, how should I live in order to be, ha- to be happy? 
Right? The world says you need to be happy, and one way you can be happy is by being a good person. And the world says if you're moral, if you make good choices, if you live an ethical life, you will be happier than the person who does not. So the world actually is quite good, and we may find this surprising, but the, actual, the world is actually quite good at coming up with rules. In fact, Eve is the best example of this. In the, in the garden, God gave Eve one, Adam and Eve one commandment, when the serpent comes along, Eve has already duplicated it into two. She's doubled the laws, right? We like rules. We like regulations. We like law. We like, uh, we really do like legalism. Because there's something about legislating life where I can go down a checklist and say, see, I didn't do this, I didn't do that, I did this, I did that. I'm a good person. And uh, everybody should look at me with admiration and respect because I am such a good person. Person, uh, the Pharisees in Jesus' day uh, captured this well. Right, they lived to be ethical, moral beings, and they said, "We, you know, we have something to be proud of by our keeping of the law." And they were very proud of that. Uh, but moralism, as well, and, and, and it's interesting when when we think about this. Um, Paul has just got done explaining at great length how. Uh, the gospel does away with law, right? And that we are not to live by legalism, by moralism. Now, does, that doesn't mean we're supposed to be immoral, cre- immoral creatures, right? But we don't live by moralism. And Jesus is a good ex- example of this. Quick question. Did Jesus keep the law? It's a tricky question, right? Because technically, Jesus did not keep the law. Now, some people would say, well, you know... Maybe he didn't keep the laws of man, but he did keep the laws of God. And that may or may not be true completely. But the point is, Jesus did not live by the given law of the day. Right? And there were expectations, there were clear guidelines of how you were to be if you were moral. And Jesus largely ignored those rules. In fact, he says in, in Mark 7, he says, uh, he says, For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. Then he said, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold to your own tradition. He says, look, your legalism is actually keeping you from being truly a good person. Right? And Jesus lived this out in many ways. Um, he did not keep the Sabbath well. Right? Broke the Sabbath on many occasions. And uh, depending on how you look at Scripture, if he broke just the traditions of man, or if he actually broke the law of the Ten Commandments. Um, so it's up for grabs. But he... He, he did not keep the strict code of the law, right? Uh, story of the woman at the well. Uh, Jesus is hanging out at a well, and um, this, this lady comes, and the two of them are alone at this well, and Jesus actually engages her in conversation and starts talking to her, right? His disciples come back, and were, and were they cool with this? No. They were horrified. What in the world is Jesus doing talking alone to a woman? Say, clearly, Jesus was not a Baptist, Right? Alone with a girl. Can't do that. It's against the rules, right? It's against the code. Jesus wasn't concerned about those codes. He was more concerned about this woman's heart, right? He did not, he was not a moralist, right? Uh, You can go on down the list. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. Horrible. You don't do that. You don't corrupt and defile your life by eating with sinners. Uh, And there's precedence for that, not only in the traditions of the Jews, but in Scripture, right? He, he technically broke the law, right? Why? Well, because 
Moralism is being conformed to the ways of the world. Right? If you live your life by moral code and by legalistic rules, you're being conformed and shaped to the pattern of the world, not to the truth of the gospel. Now, of course, the other extreme of that, uh, not everybody in the world is conformed to legal, legalism or moralism. There's a lot of people that are conformed to hedonism, right? Uh, they're all about not living by the law, right? I'm going to make my own law, and I'm going to be happy not by being a good person, but I'm going to be happy by experiencing all the pleasure I can in life, right? So the hedonist, uh, Hugh Hefner, being the, the poster child of hedonism, says... I can do whatever I want as long as it makes me feel good. And that's the purpose of life. And uh, in many ways, uh, the world is conformed to that pattern. Okay, I'm not going to follow rules. I'm not going to let people tell me what's right and wrong. I'm going to decide that for myself. And you hear it put this way, people will say, well, that might be good and right for you, but not for me. I live by a different truth. Right? Um, now, Christians, of course, don't ever do this, do they? Well, they do, actually, right? Uh, for me, it looked like this. And what we don't call it hedonism. Well, and there's, there is you know, John Piper's Christian hedonism. But that's not what I'm talking about here, okay? Uh, what I'm talking about is selfish hedonism. Uh, in Christian circles, this is how it works. We say, legalism is bad. You know, all those rules. And I'm not going to live by legalism. I'm going to live by grace, right? Which is the Christian word for hedonism. Right? And... Uh, and the way it looks is it's like this. You know, all those rules are bad. So I'm going to just live my own life and do whatever I want, right? Because I live by grace. Now, this is the experience in my life. When I first came to Christ, I was in a very legalistic church that said, if you're a Christian of any kind, you must read the Bible every day. And if you're really a good Christian, you'll read the Bible for at least an hour a day. And you'll read through the Bible at least one time every year. And if you don't do that, well, you should confess, right? And you should pray. And so I became very legalistic about this. And I every day would read my Bible and I would pray. I had no clue what I was reading. And, uh, you know, if you're really holy and godly, you read it in the King James, which I did. And at 16 years old, I might as well have been reading it upside down. Uh, no idea. No idea what I was talking about. It didn't matter, though. It didn't matter because I was keeping the rules. I was keeping the code, right? Well, after several years of this legalism... Uh, somebody told me about grace, right? that you don't have to do that, that it's legalism and you're actually sinning by doing that. And I thought, oh, that's great. I like this plan. And so I went from one extreme to the other. I started living by grace, which meant I never read my Bible. I never prayed, right? Because that was living by law, right? I'm just going to do my own thing, right? I don't need God telling me what to do. Um, well, that would be the other extreme. And I, and I know many Christians uh, who, who go from one extreme, extreme to the other and, uh, you know, live by grace, meaning nobody's going to tell me what to do. I don't need to be accountable to anybody, right? I don't have to follow Scripture because it's all just, you know, like the pirate's code. They're all more or less just guidelines, right? And where we see this surfacing in today's world is that uh, I hear this all the time. Uh, scripture clearly states this is wrong. You, you can't do this. I mean, there are some clear things in Scripture that guide us. And, and people say, but you know, that's not my culture. Right? I live in a culture that's very different than that. We live in a different age now where those things don't apply. Right? So I don't have to follow those things. 
Well, that's kind of, again, just being conformed to the pattern of this world. Right? And we see people who go off, uh, move to Thailand. They, they're not sent out by a church. They're not under an organization. They are on their own. They do their own thing. And they say, I don't have to be, I don't have to answer to anybody because I am under grace. Right? Well, that's kind of going from one extreme to another. And both are being shaped and patterned, being conformed to the way the world operates. Um, another one uh, is what I would call the category of what should I live for? Okay, what, what, what is the purpose of my life? Well, one pattern would be consumerism. Uh, that what will make, and kind of the, the, uh, the tenet of consumerism is this, that uh, you're not happy. I mean, we can look at you and see you're not happy, right? I mean, look at you. Look, at you. look in the mirror. You're not happy. And the reason you're not happy is because something is missing in your life. Now, uh, from a biblical point of view, that's true, right? There is something missing in our life if we don't have God. There's a God-shaped hole in us. But consumerism says this. There's something missing in your life, and if we could fill that thing that's missing, you would be happy, right? But what's missing is not God. What's missing is toothpaste, right? You're using the wrong toothpaste, and that's what's wrong with your life. If you would get the right toothpaste, you, you, know, you would have nice breath and white teeth, and people would like you, and you would get the girl of your dreams, and you would get the job of your, your ambitions, and you'd become wealthy, and, and you, you would be happy because of toothpaste. right? right? And of course, you try the toothpaste, um, and it doesn't quite work like it did on TV. you know. Uh, and, and so... So the next advertisement tells you what else is missing. Now, this is kind of tragic because I'm so out of touch with culture. Uh, I don't have a TV and I don't ever watch car- cartoons. Or commercials. Commercials. So, <laughs> or cartoons. So I don't know what the most recent ads are in, 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 in English. But I noticed the uh, last time I was at the movie theater, you know, they have ads there as well. And there's this cr- classic ad in Thai advertising peptine. Just some kind of drink. And I don't know what's... This, this drink is magical. I mean, this drink is special. And they've got this girl who's graduating from college who's watercoloring this beautiful, beautiful painting. She is talented. She has, you know, the awe and respect of her teachers. And she has this wonderful family. And they're happy together. And she's got a boyfriend. And they're all happy. And the center of all this is what? Peptine, right? If you have peptine, you have it all. Well, it's consumerism. Something is missing in your life when you get that thing that we're selling you. And all advertising is really based on this this reality. We're going to fill your life with what's missing. We're going to get rich off the deal. And we don't really care if you get happy or not as long as we get rich. But they sell. That's how they sell it. Uh, Does it ever work? Well, no, it doesn't. And people just go from one product to another product to another product in search of the thing that's going to finally be the missing piece. Right? Well, that's being shaped up for this world. Um, the, uh, the counter to that, and, and with many younger people, uh, the younger generation uh, are seeing the foolishness of this, and they're looking at their parents who have all the toys in the world and are still terribly unhappy, and so they're going, obviously this doesn't work, right? Because we see our bitter, angry, hostile, divorced, broken parents who have all the toys and are not happy. So what they've shifted, instead of being stuff, what's missing is adventure. 
experience, right? What's missing in my experience? So I'm going to go travel the world, and I'm going to see other countries and other cultures, and I'm going to, I'm going to live life, right? And that's going to fill me up. In, in essence, it's still a form of consumerism. It's still saying something is missing, and if I, if I get what's missing, then I'll be filled. That doesn't mean it's wrong to have stuff or to go on adventures. Well, no. Uh, but consumerism says that it is the answer and solution to your life. Right? Uh, can Christians or churches be consumer-driven? Absolutely. In fact, there's a great book out. I can't, I can't pronounce the author's name, so I won't try. An Indian guy who wrote a great book called The Consumer-Driven Church. Great read, great book. And he talks about how uh, the church has, has shaped itself to, to do exactly what advertising in the West has done. To say, look... Something is missing in your life, and it's not God, it's actually the church. Right? And we can entertain you, we have programs that are going to make you happy, and if you come to our church, uh, you can get coffee at our coffee bar and snacks at our coffee bar, and then you can go in and experience this great program where you're going to get lots of warm fuzzies, and you can send your kids off to a spectacular kids program, right? and, and we are going to fill that missing piece through our programs. A lot of pressure, a lot of pressure in churches. And they spend huge amounts of money building programs and buildings and facilities to put on a show to be consumer-driven. Now, again, is it wrong to have programs? Is it wrong to have have coffee? It's great to have coffee. I am all about coffee, right? Uh, But are we patterning, are we shaping, are we being conformed by the pattern of this world, right? substituting our programs for Jesus. It's easy to do. Super easy to do. Right? Uh, another way we get conformed is by uh, uh, the, the world wants to tell us who I should live for. Right? Uh, individualism says I should live for myself. It's all about me. I'm the center of attention. I'm the center of everything. Right? I should answer to myself. I should live for myself. I should do it by myself. Of course, we don't know, none of us know of any individualistic missionaries serving God who are all about doing it all by themselves, right? We don't know those people. I am one of those people, actually. Uh, we, we live, we're shaped by this drivenness to be individualistic, not to depend on others, not to need others, right? Now, of course, the other extreme of that would be socialism, right? Where people go, well, it's bad to be alone, it's bad to do all that by yourself, so instead, we're going to be all about society. We're going to be all about the community. We're going to live. We're going to rescue people. We're going to look for the poor and the needy. We're going to rescue them. Uh, we're going to find the victims. We're going to rescue them. And we're going to rescue society. We're going to make the world a better place. Right? Uh, also sounds good. But those things both actually are patterned after the world system. And the reason is this. At the center of both of those philosophies, they are both very much man-centered. Okay? I'm an individual because I'm the center, or I'm socialist because man is also still the center. Right? It's not God-centered. But we see it all the time. People uh, do ministry, they, uh, they help people, they, they, they live their lives. With me, or with man, is the center of it. So we start children's homes and rescue victims and do all kinds of good things, but we don't actually bring God and His glory into the center of it. Well, if we do that, we are being conformed and shaped to the pattern of the world, Paul says. 
fourthly, uh, we can we can be shaped by an, by how we answer the question, "Who am I?" By how we shape or define our identity. Uh, this gets done in a couple different ways. One by we are defined by what I do. Uh, the world t- says, "Look, if you want to be somebody, if you want to have worth and value as a person, you need to perform." You need to accomplish something. You need to be somebody. Uh, so it all, it's all about our success or our performance or our achievement. And these become our identity. Right? If I do well, if I succeed, um, I'm somebody. When I was in high school, in my, in, in my high school, it may be very different where you went to school, but in my high school, it kind of looked like this. There were the jocks right, who got their identity by being successful at sports. Right? If they were good athletes... That shaped their identity. And so much so that we had labels for them. Oh, you're a jock. And they looked a certain way. They dressed a certain way. They had an identity that was very visible. If you were bad at at sports, if uh, you were the last person to get chosen on the team, if if, uh, you didn't have a shot at sports, then you would be a nerd, right? You would get very good at school. And you would actually go to class and try to get good grades, right? And... uh, the jerks, the, the jocks thought that was the jerks. Yeah. <laughs> the jocks, <laughs> uh, the the jocks thought the nerds were, you know, were crazy. You try to get good grades. What's wrong with that? Right. Then of course there were the cheerleaders, right, who got their identity. You know, maybe they weren't good at sports or grades. But they looked good, right? And so they had their identity because they looked a certain way, right? Uh, and then if you didn't fit in in my school, if you either were not good looking, were not smart, or not athletic, there was still a category left for you. There was still hope. You could be a hick, right, which is kind of a cowboy, and all you had to be good at was driving big trucks. You go get a beat up old big truck and put big tires on it, and that was your identity. Oh, and if you couldn't afford the big truck, they just get a big belt buckle. Right? Right? Well, um, that's being shaped by the world. I have my identity by how, by what I do, what I am good at. Right? Uh, another approach of that is is defined by how I look. Okay, and I don't mean just only beauty, but how I perceive to the world the mask I put on the cover I put on, to get people to think about me the way I want them to think about me. If I need respect, I will try to do things that marshal respect. If I want people to fear me, I'll be a bully and do things that cause people to be afraid of me. If I want people to like me, I'll do things that uh, cause people to like me. Right. So our identity, we live to conform people's thinking the way we want to, to fit into the pattern of the world, right? To what they expect, what they want me to be, to affirm and approve me. Right? Of course, um, it's, it's a bondage and a slavery, and of course it's not where our true identity should be. Our true identity should be in Christ, to be his child. Uh, we should live to be affirmed and approved by him, not by people. So this, this is another sad and pathetic story from my life. Um, I remember one day, uh, in a, I was on the cross-country team. 
which uh, the cross-country team was, we were all such losers, nobody even called us athletes, you know. Because to be a jockey, I had to be actually a football player or a basketball player. Cross-country just didn't even count. So there was a small group of us cross-country runners, and we were standing around at the end of practice, and one of the girls who was about to graduate uh, was going around the circle talking about what she would remember about each of us. And what she was really doing was describing identity. And she was saying, I'm going to, this is what your identity is to me. And she was going around, she got to me. She said, you know, I don't think I'm even going to remember you. (laughs) Wow. No. No identity there. Yeah. Well, whatever, whatever the, uh, whatever the force of the influence, you know, the world is trying to shape us, right, uh, in all these areas and many more. And it wants us to uh, be a certain way. And, and, and Paul says, do not be conformed to the pattern of the world. Do not let the world and its expectations and values and beliefs shape who you are. Okay? Because you will never be able to worship God you will never be able to, to understand what is pleasing to God as long as those thoughts are running through your brain. Right? As long as you are caught in, in, in that web of thinking. Because when it comes to figuring out God's will, you will jump to law, or you'll jump to grace, you will jump to your identity in what you can do. Right? And he says those things will never affirm or approve God's will. Those things will never give you the capacity to understand what God wants. So you can live life as a living sacrifice. So he says instead, you need to be transformed. You must be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And simply, uh, the idea of transform really means being made new, being remade. Um, And a lot of, you probably all have heard sermons and there's a lot of, talk about the difference in these words transformed and conformed. Uh, Just so you know, there are a lot of scholars who will say that those words actually are not that far apart in meaning. Right? That that the truth is, either way, whether you're being conformed by the world or transformed by God, the end result is a person whose life is shaped by that thing. Right? So the idea that, and sometimes people give the idea that, you know, to be conformed to the world is just an external superficial thing, And being transformed is deeply ingrained in us. But that's actually misleading because the truth is, if you're conformed by the world, it's deeply ingrained in us. It may come from the outside pressure of the world, but it sinks to the root of who we are as a person. So in that sense, the terms are not that different. Uh, We don't need just the outside of us remade. If we've been shaped, as Paul says, we have been shaped, we have been influenced, we have been molded to the world's pattern. What we need is a complete remake from the inside out. We need a complete remodel. Uh, I've remodeled a couple houses. And uh, remodeling is, is, is oftentimes way harder, way more work than starting from new. Because you have to go in and you have to rip stuff out and you have to tear stuff out. And oftentimes you find that what's underneath is inadequate. It was built poorly or it's rotted. Right? And you've got to tear that out. You've got to get all the way down to new foundation, and in many ways, start over. And that's what Paul is saying is required in us. We need a complete remodel. 
where these old ways of thinking, these old patterns, these old things that we have shaped our life after are ripped out and something new is implanted in us. Uh, It's significant to note also that he says, we do not conform yourselves. It's an active verb, something we do. We, We willingly allow the world to shape us. He says, instead, be transformed. It's passive. In other words, we really don't have the capacity to transform ourselves. Uh, it's ultimately something that God does through the work of the cross and the gospel. So we let God transform us, and it is a lifelong process. It's something that will go on our whole life. So we'll never get to the point where we can say, you know, I'm no longer at all conformed to the world. Every part of me has been transformed, and I am now, I got it. I just got it, okay? If you're at that point, you're in trouble, okay? Because you don't got it. Okay? It's a lifelong process. And until Jesus returns and he finishes that transforming work, this will always be a battle and a struggle for us. And Paul says that we need this transformation by changing the way we think, right? By renewing our minds. Now, while transformation is something God does, the good news is there is something we can do about it. And Paul says what we can do about it is change the way we think to transform or renew our minds. Um, Well, how do we do that? How do we transform our thinking? How do we renew our minds? He says you need a brain transplant. Take your old brain out and put a new brain in it that thinks differently. Well, how do you do that? Well, uh, it, it requires good theology, Okay, it starts with understanding the truth of who God is and who we are. But theology in itself is not enough. One of the reasons that uh, many of us are not uh, being transformed like we should, to the extent that we should, is because we think, we think this. And I think this often. I think, you know, I've got good theology. And every day my theology gets better. I know the right answers. I know what the Bible teaches. I know who God is. I know who Jesus is. And I can, I can argue with people with bad theology, and I'm confident I can win because I'm always right. Ask my wife. She'll tell you. Okay, so I'm not always right. Um, but here's the, here's the reality. How many famous pastors, preachers do you know who have written great books, who pastor great churches, who've had successful ministries who have great theology have fallen into immorality, adultery, sin. We know lots. We we can name famous people, famous pastors, pastors of great churches who have great theology, who know all the right answers, who have fallen into terrible sin, adultery, and other horrible things. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because you can know the right answers, but not live them out, right? Changing the way you think is not just having good theology, right? At some point, we have to take the truth that we know, and we have to sink it into the way we live, right? And the problem is, too often, we read the Bible, we study God's Word for content, not conviction, Uh, We read it for knowledge, not obedience. We think if I know a lot about the Bible, I have changed the way I think, but it's not true. 
until we take what we know and we have found ways to apply it in clear and specific ways in everyday life, we haven't really transformed or changed our thinking. Right? We need to go from truth to transformation. And we need to ask daily, daily, okay, today this is the truth I'm reflecting on. How do I need to practice that truth in my life today? In the circumstances I'm facing as a parent, as a spouse, as a worker, in my ministry, in life, right? How does truth impact those specific things and places and events? Um, And until we've started doing that hard work of wrestling with what that truth means in my everyday life, our thinking will not be transformed or changed. So when we read Scripture, our reading should be a lot more like meditation and reflection, where we are wrestling with the truth of Scripture and asking, okay, God, what would, you, what would this Scripture speak to things in my life that are wrong? Would speak to things in my life where I am still being conformed to the world's thinking? Where I am not really practicing this in the way I'm treating people, the way I'm making decisions, the way I'm living out my daily life? Um, uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer practiced reading Scripture this way. He would take a Bible verse, usually just a few verses, and he would actually read it for one solid week. And he would read it over and over and over again. And he would not let go of that Bible verse until God had clearly shown him what it meant to live differently according to that passage. That's what we need to do. That's what it means to renew your mind, to renew your thinking. Right? So that God's Word is changing us, shaping us, helping us to see and think differently about all of life. Uh, for me, uh, God's, it's an ongoing, lifelong process, and he's doing that in many ways. But for me, the most profound way that God has done this in my life is, uh, is in understanding what God's love is. And I think I've shared this before, but let me just say it again. For, for my own spiritual journey, uh, if you were to ask me, you know, the theology of God's love is God loving. Got the right answer. God is loving, right? God loves us unconditionally. But in my daily, everyday experience, I didn't really believe it, right? I knew it as the right answer. I did not know it as a heart conviction. And for many years of my spiritual life, I really felt like I needed to earn God's love. I needed to, I needed to do the right things. I needed to please God, meaning not give Him worship, that's pleasing, but I need to please him as in, I need to not mess up so that God will like me, so that God will affirm and approve me. So for a lot of years of my life, I was trying to serve God in order to hear God say, oh, finally, I can like you now, right? Well, I've had to change my thinking. Not my theology, right? I always knew the right answer, but I've had to constantly work at changing my attitude about God's love toward me. That when I mess up, when I sin, when I do really dumb things, uh, God still loves me. That never affects God's unfailing, unconditional love for me. And that I don't do the right thing in order to gain God's approval. I do the right thing because He already loves me. That's been something that God has to work with me day by day by day. And constantly I... 
I see new scriptures where God reminds me of that. That's what it means to change our thinking. Um, Well, Paul says that if we do that well, as our thinking changes, he says this is how you'll know God's will. He says you do this, you renew your mind so that you will be able to test God's will. Here's the truth. For the most part, God is never going to send you an email giving you detailed instructions about His will. Instead, what God wants you to do is to be um, sensitive. He wants you to develop a sensitivity to things in life that just are His will. Right? He kind of wants you to have, develop a spiritual radar. Okay, radar can, can go off and, and can send sonar waves out and can identify objects that would be invisible to the eye. And that's how radar works. It sends out those sound waves and it pings off those objects like an airplane or other things and it, it comes back and it, it identifies that object out there. Uh, God wants us to develop that kind of spiritual radar that we, we come into an event or a circumstance or a situation and our sonar goes out and it pings off that thing and it comes back and it says, Danger! Danger! Not God's will, right? Or it comes back and it says, this is what you need to do in this situation or circumstance, right? That is my will. And, and Paul says when we do that, three things will be true of everything in life, every decision, every event, every circumstance that we face, that will affirm or prove it as God's will. He says, first of all, it will be good. It will be good. Uh, meaning, it will be good not by the world standard, but by God's standard. We'll have a sense that there is something good and right in this course of action, in this decision, in this response. Right? Now, here's the tricky thing. Uh, a code, a legislation, rules, means that in every, given, in every circumstance, just like this, you should always respond this way. Right? And this is where we get problems with ethics. You know, the whole question of ethics, you know, if uh, you're living in World War II Germany and uh, you have the opportunity to rescue Jews from being annihilated and you have to lie to do it, is it right or wrong? Well, if you apply a code to that and says, well, lying is always wrong, then it's wrong, right? But if you live by this ethic, Paul says this ethic works like this. You are always able to discern the goodness of something. Not by a code, but by how it lines up with the goodness and heart of God. And the truth is, it's individual. Right? At one point, God put on my radar, I should go to Thailand. Well, does that mean everybody should go to Thailand? <laughs> no, right? We have to be able to discern the goodness of something for our calling, our gifting, our circumstance, where we are. Is it good? Second thing, he said, is it pleasing? Is this something that will truly be pleasing to God? Is this something that I can do and offer to Him as worship? It will be that God will take delight in. Here's the problem with rules. Um, Can you keep a rule in a way that is not pleasing to God? Well, you sure can, because that was the problem of the Pharisees. They kept all the rules, but their heart in it was wrong was off, right? And so it was never pleasing to God because it was motivated by self-righteousness. So is it good? Is it pleasing? And last of all, is it perfect? 
And the word for perfect here doesn't mean, is it absolutely, in its final state or condition, perfect? But it means, is it complete or whole in the place where it is? So in other words, you could take a brand new baby, and you could say, that baby is perfect, right? It means it's, it is what it should be in every way, given its place in life. It doesn't mean that it's everything it ever will be, but it means given where it is, it's what it should be. Um, Obviously, nothing we ever do in life is going to be ultimately perfect, because it's not perfected until Jesus comes back and gives it its fullest meaning. But the question is, given the circumstances I'm in, given where I'm at, given where I am spiritually, is it what it should be, given where I am and what I have to work with? Well, Paul says that when we change our thinking, we will become more and more aware of what is good, what is pleasing, what is perfect. And we will know God's will, not because God told us, but because we can affirm it, we can approve it, we can confirm this is good. This is what I should be doing today in this circumstance. And then we can offer that thing as our worship to God. Let's pray. Father, we do uh, just thank you so much that you don't want us to be some kind of computer or machine uh, or a puppet that you bark out orders to and we just randomly and blindly and thoughtlessly comply. Or do you want us to be people who are, um, who are governed by your principles and who live out your will and your purpose because we are able to make decisions and choices We are free agents um, that in many ways are like you and that we are self-governing. But in the midst of all our autonomy and self-governing and uh, independence and freedom, we choose to do your will. We choose to follow you because we want to worship you. We want the gifts of our life to be an offering of praise to you. So Lord, help us to know what it means to, to change our thinking to transform the way we see life so that it is not just uh, outward compliance, but it really is a new lifestyle where we live differently. And by that, we day by day are able to approve your will, uh, to test it and judge it and know what is good, what is pleasing to you, what is perfect. Lord, help us do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.